I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Kathleen O oh is a rare breed, a wellness coach who is cynical about wellness and the coaching industry. She works with clients across integration and psychedelics education. Kathleen is trained in internal family systems, also known as IFS informed or IFSCA, which is a trauma informed approach and personally comes from a background of trauma herself. Kathleen was once an anti-vaxxer and her community embraced all kinds of magical thinking and conspiracy theories. Over time, she realised that her own coaching may have involved undue influence, and through the words of a dear friend, she recognised that a lot of her perspectives were rooted in white privilege. I couldn't wait to talk to her about her work. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to trauma, emotional abuse, physical abuse of children, and controlling behaviours. There's also a bit of coarse language. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. When I spoke recently with Dr. Yanya Lalich, after I'd stopped recording, we chatted a little about issues in the coaching industry and how sometimes coaching dynamics harnessed some incredibly cult-like behaviour. As we know, many questionable self-help courses can lead people directly into cults. Yanya mentioned that she'd been working with a life coach who had an interesting perspective and who might be up for an interview. She put me in touch with Kathleen O. And when I listened to an interview with Kathleen on another podcast, Free Your Inner Guru, I knew I wanted to hear more. I found Kathleen to be up for examining her own biases more than most, and certainly more than I'd come to expect from someone in this industry. I'm sure that you'll find our conversation as valuable as I did. 
Hi, Kathleen. Firstly, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. When Yanya Lalich mentioned your background to me, I knew I was so keen to speak to you and hear your perspective. So I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Sarah. And getting an endorsement from Yanya is always quite a thing. So I appreciate that I'm here. She, yeah, she's, she's incredible. So I thought just to start off with, to get a bit of a sense of, of who you are and how you came to be who you are, I wondered if you could tell me just a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing. Yes. You know, I think that that's an interesting question. And it's also really important as how I ended up in, in my life and the choices that I was making. So I come from a very small rural town in a northern province. Uh, my family, the history of my family is that we're a settler family. And that I think is meaningful because of, you know, the intergenerational abuse and trauma that the people before me brought into our family history. So I was raised with a lot of misinformation. I was raised with a lot of untruths and also control and uh, power over. And then also it wasn't a, a main part of our life, but there was a lot of Christian ethics that were brought in as well as being good citizens within the community as a, you know, a fairly large prominent family in the town where I grew up. So that was my, my roots and making my way through my life. I left that town and made my way into a bigger city. And my life kind of started off in a really unfamiliar setting with a lot of, I would say, unknowns. You know, how I saw the world as normal was truly not how the world operated. So I learned a lot coming out of that into a big urban city in a different province and was quite lost, to be honest, and had to find my way. And in that experience, I found my way knowing where I had come from wasn't good, but not really knowing better. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. And I wondered just off the back of that, if you had any kind of specific examples of ideas you had about the the wider world or the or the big city or, or whatever it was that you found to be incorrect? Mm, everything. <laughs> um, you know, what we considered normal, especially, you know, I was either related or knew people that that I had gone to school with or, you know, we were in community with. And so there was a lot of neglect, there was a lot of abuse, there was a lot of alcoholism or addiction. You know, this was in the 70s and 80s, there wasn't a, ever any conversations about mental health. There was rarely any responsibility, people were often blamed for their problems. So coming into a bigger city in the world, like, I had no, I was in college in a social work program with a, a professor that was describing the abused child for the first time when I knew what we had considered discipline was not okay. And that violence was normal and also in reflection, really scary. And looking at it from that lens, quite shocking to say, 
and, you know, also kind of minimizing it like, oh, you know, if this is something that's written in a textbook, what I experienced probably wasn't that, <laughs> which is, you know, just my way of coping because understanding and managing all of that at once was really challenging. And also just trying to, to balance this truth or this reality and to know what was good and what wasn't. And a lot of that, to be honest, I didn't even, I spent a lot of time not thinking about, even though I entered therapy young, I knew that I wanted help. I just didn't know how to get the help I needed. Plus, I just knew if I didn't do that, it would be okay. I think a lot of people would, would hear that and would think, yes, definitely therapy sounds like it's so important in that situation and, and fantastic that you got it at such a young age. But it sounds like there were some some complications in, I don't know, seeking the correct kind of therapy or finding therapy that helped. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I think if I look back on those days, I didn't know what I was looking for. I just, and I also really, as a person that had been so traumatized, I honestly, and you know, this kind of just came to me right now in this moment when I'm like, what kind of therapy do I want? I just, I actually just wanted to be seen and I wanted to be acknowledged. And for the most part in those early days of therapy, I, I, you know, I remember the first, the name of my first therapist and however many others I've had after that. I also had left my town with my high school boyfriend who I then married. So like there was parts of my life that just needed to stay the same as well. Like I could manage my, a little bit of my understanding. I could get my education and do that some things differently but I was also just navigating this new world in, you know, I was in my early 20s at that point, figuring out who to be, but also not, you know, sort of unpacking all that stuff. It, it just mostly therapy was just about putting it away so that I could move forward. I didn't really know how to deal with the things that, that I brought with me. And like I said, a lot of that, I mean, I'm still processing because once I got out of the the, the town and into a, a bigger city and working in jobs and finding people that, you know, for the most part, they might have been, again, kinder people, but a lot of the patterns that I repeated in those behaviors. So I worked for a lot of abusive and powerful women, mostly trying to please or impress or be noticed. That was a history that I had created to, you know, as something that was so deeply familiar and, and to work my way out of it, I, I just kept continuing to do it, to be honest. And it's, it was a pretty hard cycle to reconcile because I then became a mother and the person that I was most dependent on was my mother. And so these these parallels of my life were to let go of something that wasn't working to figure out something that was working but like nothing was working so you know again bringing along these these experiences and becoming a mother it did really I did find enough strength within myself to know that I wasn't going to abuse my children physically and I wanted to be honest 
but being an honest person outwardly means you have to be honest inwardly. And I was also caught up in a, in a relationship with my first husband that really perpetuated a lot of what I grew up with. So it was kind of one step forward, two steps back often, especially in the, the 19 years I was with my first husband, that was a lot of similar mistakes or similar patterns of my behavior in those relationships. But thankfully, he was somebody who also didn't take any responsibility. So I took all the responsibility. And that, you know, when I say thankfully, gave me an opportunity eventually to understand that it wasn't just me. Yeah, right. And somewhere in in those years, I'm assuming, is when you became involved with the coaching scene? So I had been in my early years, I, because of my husband, my first husband and I had a child in our early 20s, my career kind of got a little bit interrupted. And so I did different jobs. And like I had mentioned, the, the work with powerful women in these, in these programs. And actually, there's this, an important person in one of those stories, because she was quite well known in the music industry and also very new age. And she hired me because I was a waitress in a restaurant she frequented. And she said to me, I really love your energy. And, you know, at this point in my life, I would say that was a red flag. But at that point, it was love and attention and like acknowledgement of something that meant I was special. And so even though that job didn't last, it was, it lasted until I had my, my first child, but the lessons and the learning, she was a regular meditator. She was somebody who talked about astrology. She talked about things that I'd never heard of and that, you know, she was successful in her life. She was creative. She was considered very eclectic. And there were so many things about her that just captured my attention fully. And because of how she lived in this really purposeful way, I sort of realized that there was another way. So it wasn't religion. It wasn't abuse or violence. She was very positive. She talked about energy. She talked about vibration and meditation. So all of these things just like satiated the starving hunger within me that was empty from having kind of no foundation of that. Even though I was raised Christian, I had rejected that because I thought if religion and God is going to allow for this to happen in my home, you know, we're good Christians with these bad behaviors I don't want that. So I know now what I didn't know then is I was really just kind of bringing along a different language of of religious dogma and the new age spirituality fit into the longing and the emptiness that I had felt within myself. And because my ex-husband and I had this young family, I just really wanted to be a different person. And that different person really just had to figure out every which way to be better. Because like I said, he was convinced that I had the problems 
that were erupting in the marriage were mine. So my background had been social work and the work that I had done early on was in that field. But because of being a young mom, I had to sort of reinvent my career around being a mother. And so something happened with the first birth that was fairly traumatic. It was a, the baby was born in a quite a difficult circumstance. So when we became pregnant three and a half years later with our second, I decided I wanted to have a different birth experience. So I sought out different alternatives for pain management and also really with the influence of this particular woman that introduced me into new age spirituality, I found hypnosis and had a tremendously powerful birthing experience with our second child. And so all of these things are accumulating and I'm just, you know, really feeling like there's things that I didn't know about that could create really good results. And so I had also for many years of my life been an on and off smoker and had quit with pregnancies and then relapsed after quite a number of years of being smoke free. And I quit smoking with hypnosis because it had been such a great tool in my second birth of the birth of my second daughter. So I was a little bit lost in my career. My children were in full-time school and things weren't coming together well because there was a, a few things within our family that were challenging. And I had returned to being in the mental health field with the Canadian Mental Health Association. And I had what I would say after working there, I think it was over a year, but I had what I would say now as my first mental breakdown. And so even with the extra support and my, you know, spirituality and thinking positively and hoping for the best, <laughs> things didn't quite work out. So I left social work. I left the, the mental health field thinking that I would have to reinvent myself somewhere. And one of my spiritual teachers had told me that I was a gifted practitioner. And because I had such great success with hypnosis, that they would advise me to be a healer. So that is when my career took off with, I wasn't a coach then, I was considered a therapist, but I trained in hypnosis. I trained in EFT, emotional freedom techniques, and then I became a master practitioner in NLP. And so those practices seemed like miracles. They were ways that I could myself feel better. I felt that I could help others feel better. I had a lot of mentors and leadership in those industries that had a lot of admiration for my work. I was a star student. I had lots of success in my practice, but like I was beginning to see that there was things that just weren't making sense. And again, looking back now, safety was never discussed. Consent was never discussed. Coercion, manipulation, and none of those techniques that were being used were ever really described as dangerous. They were all, you know, it seemed anyways to be completely safe and with 
everybody having their own, they carried their own personal authority through those experiences. If they were my client or if I was the student and the trainer, like it always was implied that people knew what was going on, but it was never explained what was going on. So yeah, that's a red flag that I never saw back then. But because I was in a full-time practice at that point, from I started my practice in 2007 And by 2009, I was getting a little bit like, this isn't really what they say it is. Like, this may work, this may not work. Do I feel like taking people's money if I don't know? Is it really the magic bullet? Is it something that everybody wants? Is it going to help? And it it just wasn't. Like, it was checking some of the boxes, but not all the boxes. And so I decided... There was a few things that shifted around uh, around that time, which was between 2010 and 2012. I initiated a divorce and I then also wanted my education to be more formal where I could do more evidence-based practice. So because of my initial education, I didn't qualify for a master's program. I had a, a college diploma. And so I did continuing education through the University of Toronto, initially in solution-focused coaching because it was evidence-based. There was research behind it. And then from, I think, around 2011, 2012, I did the solution-focused coaching program. And then I went into coaching. So I kind of put some of those tactics and techniques behind me and you know, they weren't too far behind me because there was a lot of stuff with, especially with neuro-linguistic programming that I was quite fond of, especially around language. And so the marriage between uh, solution-focused coaching and NLP wasn't too challenging. And then I did feel like I needed less of the tools from NLP and more, again, more science-based approach. And I did then enroll in a positive psychology program. So that's my coaching background. And even in those programs, a lot of the coaching industry wasn't really, like nobody really questioned who wanted to become a coach and why. And, you know, you kind of got your training and you were released into the world to do whatever you wanted with it. Mm, Yes, can cause a few problems. We are going to touch on NLP a little bit later on. It's something Mm -hmm. I've come across a few times in the making of this podcast. You won't be surprised to hear. And, but I did, I did wonder, you mentioned something briefly that I'm not too familiar with. So I just wanted to clarify it a bit for listeners, which was EFT. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. EFT you might've heard of is sometimes called tapping and there's nine points on the body that are activated through tapping. It's based on an engineer, not a scientist, named Gary Craig, who developed it as a way to calm down the central nervous system. So there's there is some some good that can happen, I think, with EFT. I personally feel like there was a, a way, there were things that I, I used it in my practice. I don't ever want to say I intentionally hurt people or, you know, it's disrupting thought patterns and calming the central nervous system. 
So if somebody has anxiety around something and you're disrupting that thought while calming them down, they're going to feel better. Whether that's something that they can manage or sustain is questionable. Yep, totally makes sense. Thank you. You're welcome. You write in your Substack, which will be linked in the show notes. I, I really recommend to read. There's some really great stuff in there. You wrote, I was unaware of my involvement in cult programming and my participation in coercive and manipulative behavior in community and coaching until the wheels fell off the world in the last two years. Can you tell me how, how that realization came about? Yeah. So like I said, in kind of through the trainings, especially with NLP, as well as hypnosis, the, the intention behind it was to, you know, like any, I think for me was do no harm, but you know, the, the, the underlying issues that people were coming with were not as simple as think better thoughts or pray it away, which I never did, but like, you know, meditate and do this tapping exercise and you'll be better. And so I really strongly believed that people had the ability to change if they we're willing and that that all it is something within ourselves that we have to be able to muster up and just power through and you know the the idea of fake it till you make it feel the fear and do it anyways i want to i you know this one cliche came to mind which is fuck cancer like i don't know if that one makes sense but it kind of is that like adamantly ignorant belief that if you just strongly face your demons, you will be okay. And I would, like I said, I was trained in positive psychology. I, I kind of took that to the extreme. I did understand the research of Barbara Fredrickson. I did understand that, you know, that it's a three to one ratio, that it's three positive for every negative, And it takes grit and resilience to overcome your your negative to use that as leverage to the positive. But in 2020, I was confronted by a very close dear friend who is also a community member and she's a black woman. And she confronted me very in a very compassionate, kind, loving way and said three words, which is you are not forwards. You are not safe. And it felt like a gut punch. And I had believed in the beginning of the pandemic that we were all going to heal ourselves and uh, transform the world through love and that love wins and that everything, if we, you know, work hard enough to be clear about our intentions for the positive loving world, then we will create that. And I had heard of white privilege. I had heard of white supremacy. I really deeply felt in my heart that I was not racist, but to be honest, I didn't know. 
And I had never unpacked any of my bias around my whiteness and the privilege that comes with that. I never even considered that somebody's life may not, they may not have the capacity or the ability to be in the place of anything but survival and or to overcome their oppression and to not be seen as a valuable person or as a life that mattered yet. So that was a really big awakening for me, especially in that moment. And like I said, it wasn't the first time I heard it, but it was the first time that I paid attention. And when she had said to me, you are not safe, like she could have been speaking a completely different language because I had no idea what that meant. And the idea, you know, taking a step back from not being a safe person meant that I was harming people. And that took a long time to settle in as reality, which, you know, she's absolutely right. She was, she is right. And I had really no option but to understand what that meant. And because of being somebody who had been harmed for you know the good part of my the first half of my life perpetuating that or being a perpetrator of harm and not knowing you know just wasn't an excuse yeah it's a, a huge topic that i'm sure we could talk about for a really long time but i i often think with racism it's like a lot of people don't understand that it has to be constant vigilance because we grow up in a racist society. So you can't actually stop that from having an impact on you. So if you're not actively looking at where in your life these issues might be coming up, you can't just be saying, I'm not racist. It's just not enough, right? No. That must have been a really difficult thing for her to say to you though. Yeah. And, you know, when I reflect on that, I believe it was out of her love for me and for herself and the respect that she has for, you know, just sheer ignorance. And like, I, I don't think she saw me as somebody who was intentionally doing this, but she could no longer tolerate my, however I saw it. And I, I, I promise you, Sarah, it wasn't the first time she, it was, you know, I know of one or two other times and it wasn't like it, it, it was water off a duck's back the, the time she had mentioned it before. And I really appreciate that she didn't give up and we are still very close today. But the other thing that happened in that moment is she said, I'm out. I'm gone. And like, there was no contact in that relationship for months. So it was uh, definitely there was a truth to what she said, because I felt it. And there was following up from that. Definitely a process that I had to do and walk through as I began to understand the level of responsibility that I had as a practitioner 
as a coach, as a friend, as a mother. And even, you know, there was, and I, I'm admitting this now, but I'm in a biracial marriage. My husband is Korean and I felt my, I had a cloak of protection because I had, I, I love a man of a different race. Like who the fuck cares? Like only a white woman that thinks she doesn't have anything, anything to work on. And there is a lot of teachers that I found and began to learn like the, the way that a white woman can show up in these places and be very dangerous and not know it and, you know, be called out and not do anything about it. So I didn't want to be that person. Yep. I think a lot of people won't realize or don't realize that coercive behavior might come from a good place, a good place, (laughs) and without recognition by those who are perpetuating it. I think you've sort of demonstrated some of that in what you've been saying already. But I was wondering how you think well-meaning people might be able to avoid falling into that pattern of behavior. Yes, that's a good question. You know, I think that we've become really strongly individualistic. We have a lot of ways of coping that are just for us and needing to be better. And, you know, I don't see that as a problem when it is exclusive to others and or if it's as not necessarily exclusive, but becoming better, better than. So anybody that is is performing unless they're competing in the Olympics. Like, I don't think you need to be better than anyone. You need to be better than the version of you that requires more attention and more care and more love and less hate and less harm and less judgment. So that, I think the coercive part of that and the manipulating part, I think in the coaching industry specifically, and if I go back to my own life, even in friendships, I wanted people to be better, but I also wanted them to be better for me because that showed that I was a good coach and that I was somebody that had this power to be an influence. And so again, I think that that's dangerous and that coercive or manipulation that happens. I think the question is who's it for? Who's benefiting? At what cost? Is anybody getting harmed or is anybody being, you know, are the conditions so that this person is excelling and other people are failing or other people's safety is at cost? I guess what I'm hearing is maybe that people who might be in a similar space in the coaching space, for example, should be really actively considering the potential for there to be harm and then making sure that they're being really aware of where that could be coming from and mitigating those risks. Yes, absolutely. Because I think like as a good coach, you want somebody to do their best and you want them to be better, but it isn't, like I said, it's not against others and at the cost of others. So it's, it's a hard thing to navigate because I, again, it's our human nature to want to be successful. And as well, like as a coach, I want clients to be successful, 
but there's a few things and this might actually wrap into the a, a future part of our conversation which is that if somebody is at cause if they are the reason why they're not getting better that's not true like if there's blame or if they're at fault or at cause because they haven't improved like there's something else and that may not be the wheelhouse of that coach and that may be um, beyond their scope and so it's often a cop out i think for coaches to say this is you know it's because you're this way that you haven't achieved this thing that we you know had agreed that you are here to do instead of you know really looking at the problem or looking at the situation and measuring if there is success if there isn't success why and like staying with it and really working through how to get the results of of the experience rather than just not taking responsibility mm, this is this is an attitude that i see a lot in cult situations is the blame of the individual for anything that they might be feeling is going wrong and i think it's such a a dangerous dynamic to have and i'm you know i'm very pro therapy for instance but i i have been thinking a lot this is a bigger conversation as well but it's about how there's so much mental health issues in society and so many people absolutely could benefit from seeing good and qualified therapists but it is still only really dealing with the symptoms right and not the cause it's so, so many ills in society are much more about inequality and poverty and access to education and all of these things so <laughs> making sure we're not looking at band-aid solutions only is is hugely important but that's me I'm digressing a little bit no I appreciate that because there are many overlaps here we're talking about the coaching and I brought in the new age spirituality and mixed in here is the wellness and that those intersections of all of that being I don't even I don't even know what it's rooted in but it's definitely rooted in something that is well I do actually know what it's rooted in I believe what I think is which is you know if we want to do you know first level capitalism into colonialism into white supremacy into patriarchy like where is it and are they all at you know the equal amounts contributing to that because if we did believe all of those things we would continue to seek more and that does continue the cycle of keeping people in those systems so yeah yeah that's that's such a such a good point and i i guess i do often feel that a lot of that wellness area does end up being about this individualistic outlook and putting things on the individual rather than looking at the systemic issues and how to kind of solve some of those bigger problems mm -hmm. yeah i think one of the biggest realizations for me and when i brought in my history my family history is colonialism and what that did to people and the land and how we prioritized education and academia and intelligence and thinking rather than feeling and dis and that just completely severed all of the connection that we have with ourselves and to our 
our natural instinct to want to be to connect to something. And when there's this severing of ourselves, our mind and our body or our, our brain, not even our mind, our brain and our body, and then having this body disconnected from, from the earth. And like, we're never, ever going to be satisfied or satiated if we believe that the, the problem is in our brain. And thankfully, you know, there's a solution for that, which is the self-help industry and the wellness industry and the coaching industry and the cults, because it actually fills the void. It tells people that there is a solution. And again, that solution perpetuates more disconnection and more ways of taking people out and more ways of keeping them distracted. So, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant solution that will never work. I've got, I've got little goosebumps. I just really <laughs> felt what you were saying there so strongly. I wanted to go back to your sub stack again, where you mm-hmm. had a list of teachings that some so-called ethical coaches may still use. And I'm not familiar with all of them. So I wondered if I might run you through them and you could explain what they are and why they might be red flags. Sure. So the first one is unconscious programming. Unconscious programming often is like through hypnosis, through NLP, um, working with what people may not be aware of within themselves, why they're thinking or feeling the way they do and what that's connected to. And so the unconscious programming is usually if in, you know, outside of this particular context is information we can't have access to because it's too painful. And so oftentimes in those systems, they're bypassing the conscious mind to get to that in order to allow for there to be some type of shift. And it's, dangerous for mostly for the person that is experiencing that because there's a reason why we don't have access to it. Totally makes sense. And the next one was fear management. Uh, Fear management often, again, feel the fear and do it anyways, really, truly cutting people off from their fear because fear is seen as weak. Cutting people off from their fear is dangerous because we're afraid because we have something to be afraid of. And by like the fear management by teaching people how to like tough it out and be strong and not weak is also cutting them off from their emotions in an emotional environment. We have access to all of our emotions and we have to be able to feel fear in order to be able to feel, you know, the, the complexity of life. And so cutting it off to be a stronger, more resilient person But actually, it's, again, to be a disconnected person from something that we should pay attention to, especially if we are afraid. We're afraid for a reason. Mm, Yep. The next one I have come across before, but I'd I'd love to hear your your views on it. Limiting beliefs. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. A limiting belief, you know, that's the best because that's your fault. And if you don't believe me, it's probably because you have a limiting belief. And so the reason why you have a limiting belief is because you're limited by your belief. And so therefore you're always going to be chasing your tail of limiting yourself with your limiting belief. It sounds a bit like a thought terminating cliche. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think this one you actually 
mentioned earlier in one of your answers when you were exploring, I can't remember quite what it was, but it was being at cause. Right. Being at cause, I have a story and I, it's, it's similar to eliminating belief, but a particular individual recently told me that they had some concerns about hiring an employee at a high rate. Like if the, the person, it was a necessary job and it had to be fulfilled in at a certain price. And this person that I was talking to was concerned about that rate and they were told that was their scarcity. So something that they were just trying to have a conversation about and understand more deeply became their problem. So being at cause is like, again, a thought terminating cliche or an unconscious bias where you aren't aware of why you believe this, but whatever it is, it's about you. It's your fault. It's not a true statement. It's false and you believe it. And therefore it's your fault. I guess it, it kind of makes me think of some kinds of logical fallacies where the you know, people do believe things that aren't true and then they might read only things that back up what they already believe. And this is a thing that, that does happen, right? And it ends up reaffirming their belief, even though it is factually incorrect. But it sounds like it's it's quite different from that. I, I know what you're talking about with that, which I think a lot of people do, and I have done myself, is to support my belief based on information that is not true. So there's a lot, I think, around conspiracies where people will, it's siloed information. They just look for what they want to hear and then back their truth up with that information. And I do think also, I, this is, it feels a little bit of a a veering off point, but I'll come back to the at cause. I also, in my defense, I was somebody that looked for information to support my belief, even if it wasn't true. And I know I, there was something that I was reading and the story was a little bit unbelievable, but I also really just wanted to be this passionate believer and so something in the back of my head thought, you know, you should do some research around this and really fact check it. See if it's something that you could, you know, have some more information about. So I did that and I found that the information was supporting that this information was not true. And I decided that the information that I found that was supporting the information that was not true was not true. So it, you know, I think sometimes for me, it was a feeling that just my brain was so conditioned to, and I've, I've heard this before about our, our brains consume so much energy and my brain was just so conditioned to a certain way of seeing the world that these like places that required more thinking or more understanding or more in depth where like it was my, my brain was like, mm, I just, I want to go over here. Like I want to go in the slow lane. I don't want to have to work at this right now. So being at cause is different than that, but it is, again, the person is the problem, not the system, not the coach. It's, you know, it's just the person. Sure. Thank you. Control versus command. 
So control and command, oftentimes that's in, I don't have a lot of experience with this, and but it shows up a lot in large group awareness training where people have, they're depleted, they're overtired, they have, a, they, they're losing their ability to make good choices. They're no longer in control and they have a lot of high demand on them. So that is like, it's, there's two things where people are, they're being put into these situations where they no longer have their ability to be discerning. And then they are, they're, you know, almost their systems have been taken over. Their hard drive is being, you know, forced to do these things, but it is because of the situation of deprivation. I mean, that just on its face just obviously sounds so unethical to me that how could any ethical (laughs) coach be using that? Yeah, it's like, I think in some ways I have done it. There are things that I've done that are extremely unsafe. And I, I did feel that it was for my, this, you know, the strength and power within myself to be a better person. But I was, I was just being controlled and, I did not have my own will in that in those situations. And do you think that the coaches who are practicing this kind of thing do they see it as if you if you get people's kind of defenses down in that way through whether it's exhaustion or food deprivation or you know changing the heat or whatever it is that that's mm-hmm. contributing to this environment that that helps them to have some kind of breakthrough or something like is there a perspective that makes it seem like it's a good thing to do rather than just a terrible thing to do to people you know like this is a really sad reality i don't think it's beneficial but what they're doing is breaking people down to the point of being completely fucking desperate and then soon after that person has nothing left in them, they sell them something for thousands of dollars. It's not about building the person. It's about like robbing them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The more I read about the methods that are going on and also the basically exploitative labor and everything that's happening in some of those spaces, it just totally blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, if those people knew that the reason why they're fucking breaking arrows and like they're just getting all jacked up to spend money, mm. it none of that leaves the room. Mm. The only thing that leaves the room is their money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Or you might feel like you have a high after it for like a couple of days or something and then you're right back where you started. Yeah, but again, like I would have done any of those things at the drop of a hat if I had the resources to do them. Mm. The next one on the list is brain reset. Oh yeah. So brain reset, it's like cleaning the motherboard. So if you bring your brain down, you know, from all of these beliefs that you've had, and then you rebuild yourself back up to like a better person. And even a lot of those, you know, I think a lot of them are like mechanical or operational words that make people believe that that's possible. It's not, you can't, you're not even born without, you know, the ability to think. So it is um, just a key, a buzzword for people to want something so desperately because what they have isn't working. Yep. This next one I have also come across before and I, 
I feel like I've come across it maybe more in the MLM space, but potentially some coaching areas as well, which is money mindset. Mm, Yes. So I have money mindset problems because I never had to think about money. I was, you know, privileged enough to always have things available to me through my life. I did not need money to survive ever. So I didn't have any foundation for money at all. And to me, like there were so many other things that I needed to save myself from throughout my life that it kind of just got into the world that money was irrelevant. So I was a perfect candidate for somebody who had a money mindset problem. But the problem was that I didn't have a money mindset problem. I had a really traumatic childhood and I had a lot of reasons to have to survive and none of them were about money. So if somebody tells me that the reason I am living paycheck to paycheck or I you know, think I'm going to manifest my dream home if I just think hard enough because I have this positive money mindset or I have a bad money mindset and forgetting the systems that brought me to this place, then it's never going to work. And everything that I've ever faced in my life, and you know, I do have the privilege of having being cared for financially as a as a child. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't lush by any means, but our needs were met. But all the other essentials in my life, absolutely abhorrent. So if somebody is saying that your mindset is because you have to just flip a switch, just like you can turn it on or off because you're better off if you have more money. Um, and it never, again, is a system that's set up to fail, then it's you. And money is, is really important. And we've been set up in the system of capitalism, which gives us even more reason to want more money. And if we're not attracting more money, then again, it's like this issue of being a bad person. And like the, 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 climb of capitalism and patriarchy to be like successful financially is such a fucking cop out because like where along the way do you get to be a good person or where do you get along the way do you get to be a human and where along the way do you get to be weak or not know the answers or you know ask for help and be vulnerable like it just cuts out your humanity if it's just this thing that you have to be and you're measured by it So there's a lot of, I have a lot of my own personal history with that. And it absolutely, like it, it pains me to see that people believe that it's true. And they believe that about themselves because it is the exact opposite as far as I'm concerned. It's not about mindset. And it has everything to do with from the moment you took your first breath onward. And if somebody's willing to to kind of go all the way back and walk you through those experiences and work through that, then maybe it's money mindset, but it's not just one thing. It's everything. Yep. The next one is that you mentioned that some 
coaches use unsafe assessment tools to help with self-awareness. And so it was more about, do you have any examples of those? Yes. So I do have examples. I won't give personal examples because I think that's not fair, but there is many. And oftentimes people put together, for me, it was a susceptibility scale and something was measured on that susceptibility scale, which made me a highly problematic person. And that information was rooted in opinion, not science. It was something that then floated me into a funnel, which then magically had the solution. So I think for personality quizzes and for things that are actually founded in research or science, I'm not even really sure that I, I, how much I believe in the Myers-Briggs or the other personality traits that people are put through for employment or for whatever. But if somebody's making up a quiz to get you into a funnel to buy a program that gives you some type of diagnosis or identity based on their opinions, that is not safe. I feel very skeptical about all of that stuff as well. And I've had to do some of these things for work and, you know, I don't, I don't know how scientific they are, but I also just always end up wondering, like, does it just put you in a box and it's, does it not just, I'm sure the intention is to help you identify certain things so that you should then stretch yourself outside of that box, but it never really ends up there in my experience. It's just, oh, now I define myself as this. And that's why I am the way I am. Yeah, I feel that way about astrology too. <laughs> but, you know, in some ways, like I'm, you know, we're both laughing and it's harmless. And, you know, what's the big deal if you're a, a maven or a martyr? Like, what's the problem? But like, it's serving a purpose, which is in the coaching industry is to make people want to improve themselves or be better in a certain way, or they're matched into like, a certain category that's going to make them more marketable. I, I'm highly, I don't know. I'm probably too critical. Can you be too critical? I'm probably too critical of astrology. Like I just, it, it really winds me up. It's like, <laughs> and I do, I, I reflect and think, okay, it's probably pretty harmless. I try to be self-aware of not being too hardline about this stuff, but it really winds me up. I have to say if anyone on a dating profile has anything about astrology, I'm like, nah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I kind of like, I used to read the horoscopes pretty religiously, hoping that I would find the answer, you know, to all my questions. And, you know, it would somehow indicate what kind of day I was going to have. And magically, maybe I would have that day. Like, Oh, it is again, it's tapping into people's desperation. And like maybe you and I are, you know, verging on the skepticism, but that is only our personal jaded opinions. But like it does feel like I don't want somebody's input on my day. I just want to be myself. Mm. And all of the the mess and complexity that that should involve, right? Because I'm in Aries. <laughs> Fiery Ram. <laughs> so the next one is is the big one, the NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. And this one, I mean, I originally came across this because once upon a time I read The Game by Neil Strauss, which it, it made me immediately think, oh, this is a terrible 
tool that people are using. This is like guys are using to trick women into sleeping with them. How horrendous. And then I think the next time I came across it was probably when I was researching Nexium. So maybe you have a, a less horrific example of how it can be used, or you could tell me a little bit more about neurolinguistic programming and what it is. Oh, yes. Well, I have my master's practitioner training in neurolinguistic programming. And so I do, like, I have a fondness. I do. I would like to bash it and make it horribly bad and and say that it's something that should be you know banned but I think parts of it and the way I was taught again we were not taught about safety but I figured out quite quickly that it could be used for the power of good or evil just as equally so depending on the person and their agenda so that's putting a lot of trust in somebody's hands if you are dealing with somebody like who's vulnerable and wants desperately to change. So for me, I, I just want to just clarify the question. Would you like to know what it is or how I used it or how, what I think about it or how much do you want about this? Because I could. Yeah, you could talk it. about this for a whole yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah. I If you can give kind of a brief overview of what it is and then I would be interested in hearing some positive ways that it could be used. And then, well, you've already mentioned a couple of thoughts about the danger of it, to be fair, but maybe, yeah, Mm -hmm. a high level, what it is and how it works. Yeah. And wouldn't that be great to know? Because I have this high level of expertise in NLP, nobody ever took the time to explain what that even meant. We just learned how to do it. Isn't that awesome? And, you know, It's such a strange tool because what you're following along with Tony Robbins is a a master of NLP. And what typically happens is you just really are an innate observer of people's behaviors. And once you catch on to the patterns of the behaviors as a practitioner, I'm paying attention to some the way somebody breathes, the way their, you know, their muscle tone, their eye movement, how, how their body moves when they uh, speak about a certain experience. And because we as humans have a very, very highly developed pattern recognition, if we use it. So when you're working with NLP, it is about pattern recognition. So it's pattern in the language, which is the most audible way of tracking somebody's emotions, but everything around the language. So they're very subtle movements, the things that happen when they when they breathe and where they go in their body when things get uncomfortable. So then when that is tracked by the practitioner, then they can replay that experience that the person has displayed because that information is captured in our conscious mind, even if it's a subconscious process in that person. And on the replay, you make a shift or alter or change wherever that experience is showing up, wherever there's an emotional, I want to say like an emotional resonance. So seeing where that weakness or that vulnerability is going to that place and offering a choice. If you're a good person, if not, 
then you use it as leverage to then create rapport with that person. And once you create that rapport, because that person feels really comfortable seeing, feeling, touching, tasting, smelling, you know, themselves in front of them, because that person has just tracked everything about you. And that feels really safe when it's like given back to you. So there's a trust and rapport that's built. And then once you get that trust and rapport, it's almost like you have the secret key to their subconscious. It's, yeah, it sounds like a really powerful tool that could be a real concern in the hands of an unscrupulous operator. Yeah, absolutely. And it was developed as a sales technique, finding what people want, you know, what their desires are, you know, just through common language and then selling them what you've like the information, like gathering, then, you know, just kind of replaying what you think they want or need, which is sounds exactly like what they want or need, which then means that you have what they want or need. So it is, it's highly volatile. Like it can be, um, and also really comforting. It's like, it's such a weird experience to be uncomfortable with somebody knowing the minutia of your existence and then using it against you. So that comfort, that feeling of trust, that feeling of exposure, but like vulnerability, because like having been as a practitioner of the experience, like it's, it is really powerful. And it, like I said, it is a skill. I know now, please forgive me, this was a joke, but it was somewhat true. And when my children are young, they, you know, would say what, like, what does your mom do for a living? She reads minds, like she's a mind reader. And I would tell them, like, because I'm, (laughs) you know, doing my best as a parent, like, I know what you're thinking. But it's not true. I know where their brains are going and how they're going to try to work around to get what they want. So I can interrupt that process and tell them I know what they want before they want it because I'm their mother, but also because I can track that information. But that's what that's what's happening. And the wonderful thing about humans is if I'm wrong in that experience, if I say, Sarah, you want this, but you want that, you're going to tell me what it is you want. So I can even be wrong and get the information. Mm. I had I had some other thoughts about that, but they've gone out of my head. Please don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is just me being uh, having a terrible memory. I, I, I always do this. I don't practice NLP. Ah. I, it's something that I no longer – it's hard to undo because I do feel like I have a skill. What I really appreciated about NLP is the use of language and – finding people's stories and the meaning in their stories. I did. And so the way that I have allowed myself to use NLP is in my own stories. I think I remembered the question I was going to ask, and it was just, do you think that the majority of people are susceptible to NLP? No, no. So 
this comes to critical thinking. And I think that people that have developed the ability to be, to have critical thinking, which I've mentioned my husband earlier, he is not like he, we are in a second marriage. We've, you know, we're relatively new in our relationship of nine years, but you know, like a lot of what I did before I don't do now and things that I'm like unpacking, I am safe in this relationship in a way that I've never been in my life. So that is success on our part because I was able to figure out how to be in a relationship that was, you know, we have many, many mountains. We've climbed many mountains and had many difficulties figuring things out because we're difficult people. But he really strongly believes that we should all possess critical thinking. And because he's an engineer and that's the way his brain works. So if somebody were to sort of try to, you know, kind of massage his thoughts or extract his thoughts, he would not, he would not have, like, he just wouldn't, he would either not participate in the conversation or he would tell them it was none of their business. Interesting. <laughs> I, I, I reckon I would be, even though I do think that I have quite good critical thinking skills, I just also really enjoy being open with people and I'm sure I'm an oversharer. Like that's, that's definitely something I've done in the past. So I'm sure there would be ways of, of getting in. And even, I think I know, like, even if I'm going to end up in a, a really pressurized sales environment, I just choose not to go there because I think there's a huge risk I would end up spending a bunch of money on something I don't want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's okay to be open and, you know, like you said, an overshare or whatever, but that's your choice. That's with consent. And also, like, if there's a bait and switch in there, if somebody's like, oh, Sarah, you said this, but did you mean that? Or you said this, but wouldn't this be better? And this with a lot of cults and coaches, that's where the problem comes in. Because as soon as I know that you may not know, I can continue to like sort of manipulate the conversation or make it more how I want you to think or what I want you to think is going to, you know, there's an opening there that I, you know, if I was a a practitioner that wanted to make you really agree with me. And, you know, this is useful if I am sharing good information that you agreeing with me is helpful to you. But if you agreeing with me is helpful to me, because I'm trying to coerce you into doing something like that's where it gets so dangerous. And the other thing, because we're talking about NLP and the language, this is actually not a fully formed thought. I'm just thinking of it now, but like the whole idea of word salad, confusing people and blah, 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 like uh, that stuff that just gets kind of, you know, exhaustive. And then your brain just goes, what's going on? And it kind of shuts down. And then all the words come in and they're, you know, we're trying to make sense of them. I understood that. But prior, I would have thought it was me. So when it's critical thinking to figure out if something makes sense, it's also critical thinking to figure out when something doesn't make sense. 
I'm I'm nodding vigorously here because I this is something I come across all the time in cults, and I think that there's so much of this sort of like word salad and and you know whether it be in a religious context it's like these long kind of sermons or in a a a new age context it might be something else entirely but this kind of over information from someone who is very verbose and good at talking about all sorts of subjects and it's just overwhelming for the recipient and the response really often is to assume that that just means that the other person is much more knowledgeable than you and so you should defer to them because they're kind of bamboozling you with all of these words. And, yeah, I, I, I know for sure, like, if I don't really understand something, I need to keep asking questions until I feel like I can comprehend it properly. But for a lot of people, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely, if something didn't make sense, I would be very convinced that that was my that I lacked in understanding. Mm-hmm. I pre-warned you before this conversation that I, I have always been highly dubious of the idea of wellness coaching and a lot of the self-help industry in general. And this might be just because I see the darker sides of it most of the time, even though I, I absolutely believe we should all be looking at ways to improve ourselves. But hearing about your experiences and how you've been able to reflect on the issues in the field tells me that there are actually ethical life coaches out there who can help people in need of this kind of self-development. And so I wondered if you could share in such an unregulated area some of the signs that people might be able to look out for that would indicate that they found a good coach. Mm, Good question. A needle in a haystack. Just keep looking. And, you know, like I can say that because I, I have had two years, if not more, you know, I came out of NLP and hypnosis in the mind control type experiences because it just didn't feel right. And I've moved into what I thought was more ethical, more ethical, more ethical, but it really, there are a few things to look for and I'm not perfect and it is an unregulated industry. And there's a not a lot of people to look to. Like I can't look to a vast number of coaches and say they're doing a good job. I can show you a, a long list of people that aren't. And any, you know, internet celebrity coach, I don't think is doing a good job. I don't, I don't know. So what I would say, anyone that is offering a service and it requires an immediate decision, there's any kind of urgency that's coming at somebody, you know, walk away. If they're not transparent about their education or their work ethic or their values, or if they're not answering the question directly, or they don't have an answer, admitting they don't have an answer. So there are some things that asking those questions and a coach being comfortable being questioned is really important to have that conversation, letting people take their time to make the decision. I think the price tag, you know, doesn't indicate a great coach. I think actually the opposite, you know, there's a safe market for people. And then there's an extremely inflated market. And that inflated market, to be honest, maybe there's a place for that, but I don't fit into that market and I don't see a place for it. And maybe the people that do have seven figure incomes are hiring six figure coaches. But again, I think that's a very small number of people. 
the amount of money that coaches, I don't think any coach should ever promise financial, you know, as, as some sort of result. That's like, you can't, a coach can't promise anything. You know, it's like a, a coach offering a athlete an Olympic medal. Like there's many factors that need to be in place and any contracts that involve an NDA, I think would be a definite no. Any, I do have a contract, but it's just about clarity and about my responsibility and their responsibility, which I think is actually also healthy and helpful. And so more good coaches, if you know of any, call Sarah so that we can all start talking to each other. And I'm not even kidding. So this is a bit of a strange, I'm bringing this in because I'm also involved in the psychedelic world. And I have in the past been an underground guide. I no longer do that. I don't think it's safe in for many reasons, but there's a really beautiful, it's not beautiful, it's actually horrific, but a good journalist, Lily K. Ross, who does a uncovering of the psychedelic underground in cover story. And it just blew my mind because these psychedelic guides, it's they're using their own internal compass to measure their ethics. And so somebody that says they're ethical is not enough. It's, and it's a buzzword. It sounds great. You cannot believe at face value that somebody is ethical. And so I have a coach, I have a therapist, I belong to support groups for recovery I'm open about my recovery. I check in with people. I have a lot of people that are that I either am in community with or that I pay to support me in my work and or somebody like Yanya who, you know, I know that it's a privilege to have access to her, but the courses that she offers like she offers courses for therapists and coaches. I know there's more coming in the new year. She also offers courses for people in recovery. I've taken her courses. I know my work through, you know, the, the lens of healthier relationships, the lens of recovering from narcissistic abuse. Like, so I've been able to take from really good leaders. Jurette, through the uh, hashtag I got out is an excellent resource. I work with her regularly. She has an incredible foundation and she really works hard with managing ethics and has been a great person to be in contact with and is a good resource for, for that and my own therapy. So like, and I will talk about it. If somebody has a coach that doesn't have a coach or a therapist, I know that you have a little bit of a self-help <laughs> um, scrutiny, but I work alone and I need some, like, I need bumpers on my life to keep me from, you know, going in the ditch. So, and the only way that I can do that is if I'm honest with myself and I'm working with people that will call me out on my bullshit. So I find that really helpful. So the other question about the coaches, if you're hiring a coach, I really want to know, honestly, where they got to be a coach, how they got to be a coach and research that coaching program. 
There's like high ticket coaching programs that like churn out coaches kind of like a puppy mill. And that's problematic. You know, it's, it's a, it's a breeding ground for people to just need to make a lot of money because they've spent a lot of money to become a coach. That is all really fantastic advice. And I'll make sure to have those links in the show notes to some of those resources that you mentioned. And in spite of my, my own doubts, I I do think that it it does indicate probably a, a good coach who has a coach because I also am much more dubious about someone who says that they're the one with all the answers. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I wanted to talk about vaccinations and I know I am not the only person who's had the experience of family and friends becoming anti-vax over the pandemic or having more difficulty dealing with those that were already anti-vax when those beliefs came to have a much bigger societal impact that became impossible to ignore. Like it was a subject that was easy to just not talk about in the past. And I think the pandemic meant that it, for a lot of people, it wasn't something that you could no longer talk about anymore. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could tell me where you were coming from when you bought into the anti-vax perspective and where you are now on that. So I was a former anti-vax person based on a lot of misinformation. Like I had sought out specifically the work of Andrew Wakefield and there was a book called A Shot in the Dark. And, you know, like I probably read the headlines and maybe the first two or three bits of information that was provided and I've developed an opinion on it. I wasn't well educated about any of it. I just went with what I believed was true based on feelings alone. What I know now is that feelings are not facts. And what I felt was I did not want anybody to harm my children. I felt that uh, protecting my children was my responsibility and that I was such an excellent mother that they would never have any danger harm. Uh, They would not be exposed to those things, including any type of virus. So I could protect them with extended breastfeeding, with, you know, the things that I was going to do. We had them at a daycare. We had them at home. There were things that I really felt now that I see were based in privilege as well as just misinformation and a choice that I felt that I had the power to make because they were my children. And that continued. My children are now... 22 and 25. And I, when I met my husband, my now husband, I can distinctly remember the day we, our relationship just about blew apart because I disclosed, we met online and I disclosed to him because I felt like it was an important, righteous discovery about me (laughs) is that I was this woman of many talents. And one of them was that I could protect my children from anything, including vaccination. And like, I thought that literally that he was going to implode. And I, I didn't hear what he had to say about it. I thought he was being controlling and not kind. I didn't think he had any kind of empathy or compassion or understanding. I really strongly felt like he he was indoctrinated. I believed he was indoctrinated into like the public health scam. So 
we put it on the shelf. We're like, we don't have children that we have to make this decision. We don't have, you know, anything. If he wants to have the flu vaccine, if he wants to do this or that, like it's his body, it's his choice, my body, my choice. And it really, you know, as nobody foresaw this coming, I truly did not think that we would ever have to revisit that conversation. And it was so heated that I was kind of scared. Like I thought, okay, we just don't talk about this because we have no capacity for it. And scared of our marriage ending is your, our relationship ending because it was so heated. Anyways, pandemic problem, vaccine, bigger problem, quantifying my beliefs, zero, absolutely zero ability. You know, in the beginning, I thought I could say, well, we've never faced a global pandemic before. So every other time that I chose not to vaccinate was different, but it wasn't. It was literally, again, it was a a choice out of feeling and fear and not out of facts. We had come a long way in our relationship to the point where we could actually have better discussions around it. And thankfully, he gave me the time and space and said, this is your decision. I would like to help you. But when you're ready, we have to be able to work this out together, honor and respect each other, and hopefully stay married. So I started researching and having more diverse input. And it was right around the time that I had been confronted about my white privilege and understood that that this decision was also based in that experience as well. Many things, but that was definitely a strong muscle I was exercising. And so the research that showed up was new, like it was because it was kind of converging in these, like this, these intersections of anti-racism, white supremacy, privilege, new age wellness, misinformation. Like there was all these places that were getting squeezed into like truth. It was harder to look away and it was easier to look toward people that were actually providing information that made sense rather than people that were providing information that didn't make sense. Even though in the past it had made sense because it was, like I said, it was a headline and it was my choice. And this was an entire world and every headline in every country and every moment of every day that people were being impacted. And I could not sit with my own decision to take care of myself when the entire world was struggling. And I really saw that it was my, it was a, an act for humanity. And I had to think beyond myself. And so that's how my, like the, the switch flipped in my brain um, to understand how much I had put away and not thought about or considered. And that came at a very large cost. Our entire community was deeply in COVID denial and also anti-vax. And so we were exiled from that community when we made the choice to vaccinate. That's really heartbreaking and also 
what an extra weight to that decision there was for you. It's just been such a divisive issue, but I the the reason it becomes divisive for me as well is because I find it really hard to understand how people don't come to the conclusion that you came to, which is that this is something that we need to do for other people and it's not about us. But I hadn't really thought about the anti-vax attitude as coming from a place of white privilege before. So that's interesting to me. I suppose you're able to be more individualistic from a place of white privilege. Is that what you mean by that? Yes. And also, yes. And as well, like the countries that were being affected primarily were not, you know, countries like, yes, Canada was having, there there was a lot of problems in this country and in the US as well, but like India, (laughs) China, Africa, like what was going on there, Brazil, like there were countries that were like, they didn't have the infrastructure. They don't have the financial means. They don't have the ability to care for their people. Like what, and like, it really drove home what was happening in India because, you know, the lack of oxygen and people that were dying in the mass graves and like, it would like, everything just became bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, a person that wants the world to be a beautiful oasis and like to live in this wonderful heavenly planet wanted so badly to cover my eyes and close my ears and la 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 and pretend it wasn't happening because that feels so much better than looking and seeing. And I, the people that chose to look away and because I could have looked away, I could have been those anti-vaxxers because I am in a situation where my life does not depend on it. I listened to you on another podcast, which I'll also link that episode in the show notes, but I think I remember you saying something as well about the fact that this was happening in India and the horrendousness of the situation over there particularly struck you because, you know, there's a lot of crossover with a lot of Indian belief systems and the gurus over there and what people in the new age world are are learning about as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the, somebody, a a person I know and their experience of their, their spiritual quest to an ashram in India and their ability to see what was there in India and say, well, you know, that, that's like, it's not happening because I've been there and I know what happens in India and the, the mainstream media is blowing this up and this isn't true because that's not what happens in India. It's like, yeah, you weren't there in a pandemic and it isn't like, it is not, if you're in an ashram practicing spiritual, whatever, and being treated like royalty, it, you're not going to see that because you're protected from it. So, you know, that was a really big, like a reality check for me because of the ways I think anyways, I've done it. Like magical thinking feels really fucking good. It feels like a beautiful place to live in my imagination. Speaking of magical thinking, conspiracy thinking used to be a bit fringe in my life. Like I knew the odd person who thought 9-11 was a government setup or talked about chemtrails. But the last couple of years has really shown that these kinds of beliefs are maybe not best ignored and are maybe not mostly harmless. 
I know many people I thought to be hippie types who would never want to harm others buying into all of this stuff that it turns out at its core is pretty toxic because these days you've got political extremists who are looking to recruit from these kinds of conspiracy communities. Many of the conspiracy theories themselves lead down the same path to the idea of a secret cabal who's controlling the world. And they, when you look into them, it turns out they're just basic anti-Semitism right at their core. And the family and friends in my circles they don't seem to be able to see where their views are starting to align with fascism, which is pretty terrifying for me. Mm. As someone who's been involved with kind of the other side of this, I'm just really interested in your experiences around this phenomenon and anything you have to share about it, really. Yeah, it is definitely no longer a part of my life, but was a pretty central part of my life for the same reasons as being an anti-vax parent was. And I really, I, when I think about my story, I, I can't, you know, I want to try to explain it away for others that are still in. I do, but I can't because I don't know what, what goes on for them. But like my story in my life was really unexplainable and hard to uh, sit in the truth of it. So I think that there's some comfort in thinking that what we see and what we, you know, what's being presented, that there's like this backstory or an agenda that we don't like, there's something going on that we can't see because seeing is painful. And the pain reminds in my life, reminds me of my own pain. So to have something that is operating, <laughs> you know, in the fringes that we're not seeing, I think like it gives power, it gives strength, it give and in some sort of weird way, I think it also gives hope because the the reality is we have to put all of those things away and be in our humanness and take care of each other and take care of the earth instead of like creating this facade that is taking up our time and attention from the truth. And I used to get a little bit outraged at vegans. Forgive me, vegans. But like, there are so many humans that are suffering. And it didn't make sense that so many people were reposting videos. I grew up on a farm. I have a lot of exposure to animal slaughtering. It's not unfamiliar to me, but like to have to be exposed to this pain of these animals that are being slaughtered in these in mass production, like for humans to believe that we need to do better for the animals, like, it is so, it, I believe that that's what people with the, the deeply passionate beliefs and conspiracy are trying to do. They're trying to create this problem to not have to actually solve the like real life shit that's in front of you that we wake up to every day. And, you know, when we see people shooting, you know, heroin or, or being homeless or doing the things that they do, they're actual people in pain that have you know, deserve dignity and deserve 
a place to do what they choose to do to take care of their pain. And it just, it is, a, for me, it's a cop-out. It's, yeah, it's really interesting to hear you frame it that way because I, I've thought about this so much because I've watched this happen to to family and friends and it's been so difficult to to deal with and I've been trying to, you know, figure it out and you, you just can't figure it out. You can't talk them out of it. You can't do anything about it, it seems, even as someone who has been researching indoctrination for years. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I guess it, it sort of makes sense that it's like if there is this evil secret cabal who's trying to do this new world order or whatever it's kind of like well that's a that's an enemy that you can work to defeat and then all the problems are solved like it's actually very Mm -hmm. simplistic isn't it Mm -hmm. so fucking simplistic it's like i don't know i used to we used to play this game like i think it was called battleship you know fighting a an impending war it's not you know it's a game but to them, it's real. It's sad. I know people that are very, very, very much involved and it is divisive. It is, it has caused a huge change in our circumstances for the better, to be honest. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the, the ways that I've been able to overcome my own, you know, in the most loving and kind way, my own ignorance, my own pain, my own misinformation, my own misunderstanding. So, but I don't like, I'm not saying this as a better person. I'm just saying it as a better version of me. I'm sure many people would, I don't know, want to hear that there's like a, a, a silver bullet to help people kind of see the the mistake that they're making in this thinking. But I mean, it there just isn't right. Even as someone who's been there. Mm-mm. No, I have a dear friend and I think it's okay to share the story. We were involved in the same group of people and I have an email list and I send weekly emails and she reads them and we comment back and forth. And in some, when we were sent, like when we were exiled, we, you know, we made the choice. It wasn't like we were you know, kicked to the curb, but it was a clear choice and we had a choice in it. We either participate in their lives or we live, you know, in our own place in the world, which is less (laughs) populated. But so her and I had to be estranged. There was a rift and it made us have to separate. There was a tremendous amount of love and connection and this seemed to be the only choice at the time so i'm sending emails and like i know she's reading them not only do i know she's reading them but like i'm checking my stats to see that they're opened and when they're opened and how many times they're opened and i'm planting like little bits of information in there like you know this go here go there look at this look at that And, you know, maybe that's not fair, but I wanted, I want, I knew she was reading them and I wanted to reach out to her and I wanted, you know, I wanted to make some sort of connection. And I did want for there to be like an an opening for her to see, oh, oh gosh, like it was real that it was about vaccination, but it, it wasn't so obvious for her that it was about so many other things. And when I was like uncovering all this and I was working with the Take Back Your Life book and when I was working, Laura Tucker, I think is the person that you had 
listen to the podcast from Free Your Inner Guru, Can Spirituality, like all of the things that I was like just taking in and planting these little seeds. And I recently had an, a conversation with her and I said, because we've reacquainted after some really tragic things that happened in our life, I said, I was speaking to you, like I was telling you, look you know, in these places and, and hear these stories and, you know, bring yourself home, like bring yourself into this, like nothing. She didn't see it. Nothing at all. And she had to come to her own decision, obviously. But like, I could have been standing at the end of the driveway with a blowhorn and it wouldn't have made it to her ears and her heart, you know, until she was ready. So you mentioned that getting vaccinated was what kind of froze you out from your community. And I guess I'm wondering that, you know, if everything I'm hearing from those communities is about that, it should be about individual choice and freedom. So how is it that your individual choice to get vaccinated should result in being frozen out from that community? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I I really appreciate the opportunity to actually address that because I don't think all anti-vaxxers are like them. And I don't, that seems really blamey and harsh, but there are people that are choosing based on their prior health and their, you know, what they feel is appropriate for their family. And I respect those people they're also like very aware that COVID is real. They're also taking responsibility in their health measures and what they're doing to keep themselves and their family safe. Like I respect that. And based on, you know, science, we can't really afford too many people to be doing that. But like, I, I can see that it is it is an important choice and people exercising that in the way that is also respecting, you know, the, you know, in Ontario, there was a lot of shutdowns and restrictions and, you know, they just went along with it, really obliging and very clear that they were making a decision that was different than others, but also being really respectful of the fact that this was an, a necessary measure. So the difference with those friends and people that I know versus like the adamantly against is a, it honestly is a conversation. It like, and the ability to just say, I don't agree. I love you. I respect you. Thank you. I'm making this choice. You make your choice. We respect and love each other. And thank you for taking this time to be my friend and to offer me your perspective. So I think it's a, in, because there was numbers on, in that group of people that, you know, that it was kind of like the cult brain. They all had to agree. They all had to have the same opinions and ideas. They all had to believe that the schools you know, could snatch their children and vaccinate them. They all had to believe that they were being, you know, possibly the microchip. Whereas somebody who has an educated decision and says, this is for my family and for my body and what I believe is this is best. Like, 
peace and love. Like I can do that. I can totally do that. And I think that we can afford to have people make different choices if they respect the, the rules. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make as well. So thanks for that. Mm-hmm. We're coming to the the end of my questions now. I really appreciate you've taken <laughs> this much time to speak with me. And so nowadays you've thoroughly reconsidered your practice and your methods around coaching. And I just wondered if what you could tell me about your current approach to your work. Oh, I wish I could. Would you like to a list of my clients? They're I'm they're willing to talk. That's the best thing. And you you know, I think that's another thing to ask future you know, people that are looking for coaches, if their clients are willing to talk. So my approach, really, I do, I did train in a process called IFS, which is internal family systems. And it is a trauma informed approach. It has many, there is research behind it. There's a lot of, I, I think that it's got a lot of good qualities. And so, but everything that I do with my clients now is with consent. I don't ever tread into any territory that is not uh, known. The process is understood. The goals are clear. The, you know, the beginning and the end of our relationship is clear. If they want to extend it, that's a choice. I have a very limited number of clients. I don't, you know, I don't just take any client. And, you know, I think that that's also, I get, I get to decide that, that, That is, you know, I'm at the level in my career where I can make that choice. I am not for everyone. I am going to be honest. I want my clients to call bullshit on me and I will call bullshit on them. And so one of the things that I I printed in a um, one of my substack was look for leaders who want to build leaders. And I'm in a really... I'm, I want to call it privilege. Like it's a privilege to work with the people. I'm not talking about a privilege to be, you know, a white woman. It is a privilege to be in the company of these people that are making these choices to make a change. And it's a beautiful space and it's a beautiful place to witness, but it is on their timeline that that happens. And I also have to be willing to let them fail and or like let them experiment and learn and build the muscle of being themselves and being better at it and sometimes that actually requires them to do things that may not work and to let the you know give them the opportunity to to embrace that i'm weird i like that about me i you know i'm honest about it i also talk about drugs because they've helped me. I don't have any expectations for people to, to do drugs, but I often ask why not. And it is a unique place that I'm in. And I do really respect this as a career choice. I love it. And I respect that people have made the choice to work with me. And I really, really appreciate and honor that. Well, I, I have to say that if I ever find myself in need of a coach, you would be my first choice from everything (laughs) that you've told me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Sarah, I'm blushing. Thank you. I was a little bit concerned about this, you know. I thought, like, I'm climbing a mountain here. And people don't want to hear this. They don't. There's a lot of coaches that are going to be pissed off. And my friend count is very low, so it's not you know, I'm not going to lose much on talking about this. Well, I I mean, that's what makes it so 
important though that it i mean it should be an industry that does have a lot of self-reflection and wants to look at where it can do better and wants to know where there might be harms caused Mm. so it's just yeah everything you've said convinces me that you're doing it in, in a much better way than many of the people out there and i as i said i do always see the really dark sides of this stuff so it's 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 comforting to know that there are people out there who are also seeing that and trying to work against them too so i just i think it's fantastic what you're doing oh thank you thank you sarah you know i've also learned coming out of the cult world in you know so many avenues like it's actually healthy to be a skeptic i want i encourage that for many years i thought it was kind of like shitty to be a skeptic and to ask questions because you know do it and like believe, you know, just believe, be a believer. So I really appreciate your skepticism. I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate your work because this conversation wouldn't, wouldn't be possible. Not a lot of people want this conversation. Well, thank you so much for making the time to have it and for being so open and so honest. It, it's really fantastic. And is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? No, I do. I, you know, I think you're going to link to the show notes, the Substack, and this is a plug to my work, but like if people want this conversation, I'm willing to have it. And there are places in like public places where we can engage. So I just, I just wanted to give people the opportunity to share if they think it's worth sharing. I will put it in the show notes, but where can people find your Substack? Oh, my heart dot Substack dot com. Perfect. Yeah. And I am an, I got kicked off Instagram. I have presence on Instagram just to have people come over and have a conversation with me on, on Substack. Perfect. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Kathleen. And it has been a pleasure speaking with you today. Oh, mine. Thank you so much, Sarah. You can access early and ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my book, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The link's in the show notes. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written and produced by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. A very special thanks to Kathleen O for speaking with me. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. If you've personally been affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au. And you can find resources outside of Australia at yanyalalich.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio-Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. Thanks for joining me, and hope to catch you again next episode.